everyone. This is Mira. This is Ankit. Uh, welcome to Leaving Footprints, where we interview guests from a variety of different career backgrounds to provide you with insights into their fields. We're really excited about today's guests, and Ankit will introduce them. So we actually have two professors who have taught us in our program so far. We have David and Michael, who are part of the executive team at Competitive Analytics. We had the opportunity to, to be taught by them for our Art and Science of Forecasting course. So Mira, do you want to ask the first question? Yeah, so without further ado, can you both tell us a quick introduction about yourselves and we'll get right into it. Sure. My name's David Savlowitz. I'm CEO and founder of Competitive Analytics. As you just mentioned, I also teach at UCI in the Master of Science and Business Analytics program, teaching predictive analytics with our very lengthy title, The Art and Science of Applied Forecast Modeling. Um, Business has been in business for just about 21 years, and we're a full-service, full-data analytics company serving Fortune 500 and SMBs. And uh, I'm Michael Ponton. Um, I'm Director of Analytics for Competitive Analytics. Um, I started at Competitive Analytics about 15 and a half years ago now. Um, I actually started there while I was finishing up my master's program at Cal State Fullerton. Um, and yeah, and I co-lecture uh, co with, with David um, at UCI. So can you guys talk a little bit about how you got into like your data science career and everything? Do you want to go first, Michael, on that one? Sure, sure. Um, well, mine started um, with just the love of economics, really. And, and, and to be honest, um, I was actually a pretty bad student um, throughout uh, you know, high school. Um, and then I took my first economics course, uh, my senior year of high school, and I fell in love with it. Um, and I remember uh, they do the national testing um, for economics, and I tested like in the top couple percent. And they sent the results to my parents, and they're actually just stunned because they knew. I mean, I, I guess I, I guess I just didn't apply myself as much as I should, but <clears throat> I tested really high in economics, and from then on, I just fell in love. Um, and then that kind of naturally led into, you know, price optimization and forecasting, you know, with the econometrics courses that I was taking. And, you know, it all kind of relates to, you know, predictive analytics, machine learning, um, and so on. For me, um, there's a couple points on my journey where I knew I was going to be a, a collaborator with data and analytics. Probably in my formative years, uh, I don't know, I was about eight or nine years old, my friend and I had a wiffle ball league we created, but it was a fictional wiffle ball league where we made up all the players and their personalities, but I decided to keep statistics on every single one of them. So we wow. had, I literally kept a log of statistics on, you know, fic fictional players. Um, but it wasn't until college when I uh, took a statistics class and the professor was drawing some formula up on the board early on the first part of the class. And you know, he essentially just said, look, if you can figure this out here, then you can tell what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was, I was stunned. I was shocked. I was amazed. I kind of fell in love right there. I'm like, what? That seems pretty awesome. So that was my first foray into guest predictive analytics. Um, yeah, I worked at the Irvine company and uh, Kenneth Leventhal before that and Ernst and Young, but I decided, you know, in 2000 to start my own company and um, yeah, it was, it was primarily going to be a very purely objective science-based data-driven analytics adventure. 
and venture, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that Michael had just mentioned about, um, you know, the economics piece is something that just doesn't get emphasized enough as far as my journey and Michael's journey and then where we are today. Because even though people call us data scientists and, uh, you know, analysts and people that conduct advanced analytics, really at the foundation of the bedrock, it's economics. And we kind of remind our clients of that almost every day. It's not so much figuring out a formula as it is what's the business case, right? And it all gets back to, again, supply and demand probably. But And uh, that needs to be the compass, if you will, for the data and analytics. And so that's why we're an exceedingly different company is we we haven't lost our our way as they, as they say we our, our compass is is economics data yes are we you know heavily into data science do we do it really well yeah we think we're pretty damn good at that yeah. but what, what I think is the anchors the, is the is the economics yeah and I'll, I'll add to that actually when I first um, ran into competitive analytics it was actually at the career fair at Cal State Fullerton. Um, where I was getting my graduate degree, it was you know one year in, um, and I went to the career fair there and was chatting with you know some of the different employers, and then I stumbled across their booth. And um, back then, e economics and economics degrees were not that popular. Um, very only a handful of people were in my class, um, but I saw their their sign for their company. It said Compound Analytics, and you know we do um, economics, forecasting, econometrics, price optimization, and I was like the only time I've ever seen a company with a sign with, with pretty much everything I want to do for a living. Um, and it was kind of love at first, love at first sight at that point. We're still the only company that provides all that stuff. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think that's amazing that you started this, like, especially like, it seemed like way ahead of the time too, that you're tying together economics and data science hey. and statistics, everything together. Um, and I really appreciate that aspect of your class as well, because you kind of reinforce the idea that you know, you have to have the background knowledge and you have to be able to explain it to somebody who may not know what you're talking about. And that always involves a little bit of economics terms and, you know, like business uh, background about that. And then it's funny that you say economics was not a very popular major because I studied econ at Davis and my class size was huge now. So yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy how that's different now. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely come full circle. I mean, now when we get applicants, uh, we see it quite often, major mm -hmm. in economics or, or at least double major, you know, economics and finance or something like that. Yeah. Um, but back in when I got my degree, it was there was just a handful of us. Yeah. But it's, it's nice to see, um, you know, how far it's come because it yeah. is like a, it's really the bedrock of yeah. like predictive machine learning. It's all I mean, it's all there. It's all economics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and then we've, uh, we've uh, created our own economic theories along the way, right, Michael? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I would love to hear about those. <laughs> but uh, I guess since we're kind of talking about your company, Competitive Analytics, um, can you tell us more about the background of the company and like what roles you both play? Yeah, I mean, I think I touched upon that a little <laughs> bit, but uh, I was a director of market research at the Irvine Company mm -hmm. and the big monolithic behemoth company that owns one fifth of Orange County. Donald Brennan Company, and um, it was great. It was a, it was a, it was an interesting, intriguing two years. But I, I at that point, I realized I had to do something on my own, own mm -hmm. as, as a kind of a as a musician as well, an artist. I, I can't listen to what other people are wanting to, you know, do when yeah. I'm on the wrong path for me. 
So, um, yeah, in January 2000, Competitive Analytics was formed, and we were primarily a real estate consultancy, um, home builders, apartment developers, you know, real estate investors, et cetera, et cetera, some banks. And then the 2008, 2009 financial crisis hit, and that completely impacted our company in a very mm -hmm. negative way. I had to just bluntly fire everybody except Michael. I pulled Michael aside and said, look, I'm going to have to reinvent the company. Mm -hmm. and I want you to be part of that. And, um, but instead of just real estate, let's, uh, let's focus on a very diverse, if, you know, group of companies and industries, which really meant everything, everyone. So now real estate, I think makes up maybe five or 10% of our portfolio clients, but we're in everything now, you know, pharmaceuticals, um, automobiles, motorcycles, entertainment, um, you name it, you know, we pretty much, you know, have a client that makes it. So, yeah, so that's kind of a quick, quick and dirty background. And, you know, as far as 2000, when that started and COVID hit, the memories of 08 and 09 sort of obviously <laughs> were ringing in my ears. And uh, I was extremely cautious about what was going to happen in 2000, thinking we may have to just uh, grin and bear it. But we, we finished 2020 uh, on a, on a near record pace. So, um, yeah, be, you know, analytics is a thing where I think we, we built the bedrock, I think in a solid fashion in which we were able to, um, have a company that, uh, can take on some of these black swans and aberrations, not to say that, it'll, you know, we're going to be fine over the next one, but, uh, it seems like we've, we have a, some good, uh, a good tenacious bedrock of, uh, success. Yeah, I'm really excited to see where the company goes in the future because I feel with analytics, things are just kind of advancing and going up like for so long because data is everywhere yeah. all the time. So, And kind of also speak, you kind of spoke about like how you had to restructure the company. So how do you think the pandemic has honestly changed the world of data and analytics in your opinion? Michael, do you want to start first with that? <laughs> the world, it's, well, it's made forecasting a hell of a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, even in the, the even the financial crisis, you know, how many deviations were you know some of those forecasts off? You know, like twenty eight deviations from what I remember. Uh, this it takes that to even the next level. I mean, some of the forecasts mm -hmm. that we did, you know, last year before the pandemic hit, and you know, we're looking at them now as we update forecasts, and it's like, right. you know, who would have seen you know that coming, and then who would have who would have forecasted that the impact? Yeah. If, I mean, if you look at the historical trends for like employment or personal consumer expenditures. Like if you look at all the history since, uh, you know, 1930, we've never seen employment take a hit that quickly um, to that amount. I mean, it's, it's insanity. So um, it has made forecasting a lot more difficult, but we've been able to get um, pretty creative with some new methodologies. So it's actually increased our, our tool set, if you will. So it's made us smarter. That's for sure. We're going to learn. We've learned from it. And now um, these black swan events will always be um, a scenario in our forecast. Right. You know, talking about, you know, what Michael's been just mentioned, um, which we didn't kind of go over in the class because we were developing and inventing this while we were teaching you because um, we have a lot of large companies and industries that rely on the models that we built and you know we were honest we're like we have to rebuild a few things here right obviously uh sorry we didn't you know 
you know, we didn't anticipate a 100 year pandemic that was going to hit within a certain year. Um, If we were able to do that, we wouldn't be doing this. We'd be in Las Vegas. So um, we, we built a, a whole new model that just like I teach in class, blew up the box. And it's, uh, it's, it's uh, deals with compliments and substitutes. Cause we've noticed if you look at what's happening in the pandemic, some industries did really well and some yeah. obviously a lot didn't. So we posed the question just to, this is kind of a good example of how we think and go about doing things from an economic and, and philosophical point of view. Well, why, why did Peloton do, do so well? I mean, obviously it's obvious to us, but mm-hmm and Zoom and some of these other companies and uh, Amazon, right? And I'm not talking about the generic why, everybody knows that, but getting into the nuances and the, st- the structural reasons. And then conversely, you know, obviously sit down restaurants, all these other industries and services got hammered and crushed. Hey. So what were the underpinnings of that beyond the obvious? And so then we took a target client product and said, okay, how do we align the, that with these indirect correlative substitutes is what we call them. We have a lot of names for them internally, but, and these correlative um, um, complements, if you will. Okay. And um, we started building these models, uh, you know, haven't been done before because the first thing we do is we Google and we try to find academic papers on something that comes in into our head and when you don't find anything at all, you know, when you go through a couple thousand journals, you're like, okay, no one's really done anything like this. And so um, to say that it works is, is a bit premature and egotistical because we don't know yet, but because we're still in the midst of it. But I, I think we've got a pretty good set of scenarios and models that take a look at these odd events, aberrative events. And so what does this mean? Well, if you don't think like that, if you don't philosophize, on these things. I don't know how you're going to become a good data scientist, right? Because I'm sure this webinar and these people watching this are, you know, data scientists, type scientists to be. And, and you know, they're, they're, they want to learn their Python and their code, and right? And learn, you know, random forest models and k-means clustering. But if you can't take a step back and literally take a, a good forest through the trees um, view and lens mm-hmm. on what it is and how the world works, right? And how humans work, really. And we touched upon this in class, you know, economic economics involves behavioral economics, which nobody really is talking about. So we sort of, for the for the COVID and how we restructured what we were doing specifically, we, we went to behavioral economics and we overlaid that with some of these new models, these data science models and predictive models, such as these complementary and substitute-based models. And it's, you know, it's gotten some good resonance, some great resonance from the clients. And, um, you know, we're updating them regularly and building ensemble models. But just to take a step back and say, this is, you got to ask yourself questions about how the world works and how humans work, uh, which is kind of one and the same. So if you can't do that from a holistic point of view, you're not going to be a very good economist nor data scientist. I know that's not what a lot of you know, data scientists want to hear, they want to focus on code, but you got to pull back and you have to kind of see the forest through the trees. No, I completely agree with that. I think, uh, so one of the projects for the class which we had was a Super Bowl project. Uh, and I think we saw like a lot of us had predicted that 
like we kind of went with the obvious choice that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win but i think that match was completely unexpected and we like even though we were trying like i remember then uh, i had a conversation with michael about it that we were kind of just thinking like what variables can we actually consider uh, and i think one of the biggest ones which i was kind of just confused about is like how do i consider the fact that tampa bay actually has like a home advantage for a first time which is not something which is noticed a lot in earlier matches in super bowls and everything so i think it's really important to kind of consider the uh, human aspect of everything because at the end we are the ones kind of performing those things and you don't know the unexpected is never expected right so i think that's a really good point that behavioral economics is a huge component of data science for us and that's why michael finished top of the list out of yeah. 400 <laughs> forecasters on that project i was just rooting for tom brady that was it <laughs> Yeah, I was going to just talk about that project again after the results were out. I was just I posted on LinkedIn like how do you account for someone like Tom Brady in yeah. your model? <laughs> so it's definitely important. I don't know much about football, but if I knew that he was going to be such a big factor, I think that it's definitely really important to kind of understand the context of everything first before you try to dive into even just coding. Right. So the way you look at that philosophically is if you do nothing, right? And you may do just as well as the person that built a model for this first time that something like this happens. Mm -hmm. But now the, the data scientists, they accumulate that experience mm -hmm. and they work it into their next model, right. just like COVID. So the person that's still going to be just shooting from the hip, doing nothing, applying no data science, at best, he just gets lucky. He or she will get lucky. Whereas in the next unexpected event, there is a much higher probability that the data scientists are good economists and data scientists is going to be able to anticipate things a, a, a lot right. more. Accurately. And that's been proven over and over again. What's actually funny is that I remember when we were doing the project, um, my first conversation with Michael, I had told him like what idea, and he said, your idea is really similar to what he was doing. And actually what score he had gotten was the exact same score I had initially. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, uh, but then I was just like, I'm not convinced. I need to add a remove variables. I think we're just like getting in our, I was getting in my head even more. I think that complicated the model itself way more. Uh, but I think he kind of stuck to his gut. And I think that's a lot, lot of data scientists need to do as well. Well, I think you bring up a point. There's two edges to a sword, right? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I, I use too much qualitative, <laughs> you know, dimensions onto this. I should have just stuck with the numbers. Sometimes that works out when you add that qualitative layer. Mm -hmm. So it's not whether you should or you shouldn't, it's when and how much weight. Exactly. It's not like I should have done that or that. It's, it's, I think you use both. And we went over this in class ad nauseum, mm -hmm. right? Qualitative and quantitative. Yeah. So, uh, so my next question was going to be, we were talking about how uh, after COVID started, there was all this complication with like, you know, your forecasting and modeling. So, you know, like analytics and forecasting can be really frustrating. So uh, do you have any ways that you keep yourself motivated to kind of keep going and come up with strong forecasts for that? Um, I think the ambition to be right. <laughs> 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 like, you know, it's like a, a contest with myself um, to, you know, always be better. Um, and, you know, doing it for a living and updating forecasts constantly, annually or quarterly, you're constantly testing your results. 
all the time. So it's not, it's like we just provide a forecast and go away and never look at it again. We provide that forecast. Then a year later, we're looking at it again. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is, this is where my model was off. Um, This is what I need to adjust. And then it's a constant calibration. So we're constantly learning and yeah, you just, you want to be, you want to be better. You want to, you want to go into that next year when you do that update and be like, okay, I was only like two percentage points off or a fraction percentage off. Then, you know, you know, that's what, that's really what keeps me going. You want to brag. Yeah. <laughs> so, but at times it just feels like, I think uh, when we were also, cause this is my first time actually building like predictive models, which I actually didn't have experience with. So uh, it was, it was a bit overwhelming. And I think, how do you guys like take a step back when you guys know that, okay, this is like, we need to like take a break right now. How do you guys like stop yourself? Because I, at times me and Mira, we used to have these conversations like, okay, we just need to keep working. And even for the stock forecast project, I think I made 12 models because I was not convinced that like my first model is right. I was like, I need to make like few more. So when do you guys know, like when's the stopping point for you guys? <laughs> Run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> When I feel like I want to throw my computer out the window. That- <laughs> yeah. Now sometimes, and it, it, sometimes you do, you do have to take a, a step back from the computer, just do something else for a while, go for a walk. I think I do some of my best thinking um, or, you know, you, you get the most the biggest moments of clarity when I'm either like working out or like taking a shower. It's like all of a sudden you get your mind off of it. And then out of nowhere, you'd be like, Oh, okay. Um, here's a couple solutions that I can try and see if they're working. And so you can't, sometimes you can't force it, right? You can't just sit in front of the computer and force a you know, square peg into a round hole. You just got to step away sometimes. I have these epiphanies all the time away from the data science ecosystem. In fact, I would say few ideas, very few ideas have come while working, you know, inside the clay of data and uh, analytics. I, I'll give you a ex- perfect example. Two days ago, I, I Skyped the guys and Michael, and uh, I was reading a, a MIDI book. Um, MIDI stands for Musical Interface. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a music book about um, the language of how instruments can talk to each other. Nothing to do really with analytics at all. And um, I, I was reading a chapter on, you know, how the data gets cycled through in a, in a, a certain fashion through keyboards, right? And I was like, just thunderstruck with an idea about how we can, you know, apply that to forecasting. And so uh, music, sports, uh, movies, taking a walk on the beach, uh, th- these are all... I mean, I'm speaking, I guess, for myself and the people I closely associate with, with like Michael and our staff and, and our friend, my friends and colleagues. But the, for me, it getting ideas of data science and analytics while you're doing data science and analytics is, for me, far and few between. I, I it just doesn't happen. I mean, right. it does happen occasionally, but I, I need to be away. I, I you know, right. that's probably my role. I have to go to the beach every day, so that's kind of my role. I wanted to just say that it's like data science is very technical, but it's also a very creative field. You kind of need to explore what you're saying, like not just staying there and doing your coding and doing all this figuring out with forecasting, but also just stepping away and 
it'll come to you. I feel like. I think the coders are going to hate this comment, but you can't create while you're typing. That's uh, a really good point, can't. though. That's a really good point, though. You can't. You can't create while you're typing. You know, all the time. I guess I should say. You know. Um, you know, I got a guitar sitting next to me right here, and I'm like it's a little different because, well, you, maybe not like while you're playing something other than, other than the dimension of improvisation, which is, you know, creating while you're playing, if you're actually composing a song, you don't compose most of your song while you're actually playing through a chord progression. I mean, some of that you end up doing, of course, but sitting back, playing it back on your, you know, digital audio workstation again, stepping away from the music and working, focusing on the lyrics, uh, going to the beach, taking a walk, right? This is exactly the same thing a good, or I should say a great data scientist should be doing. Um, you know, Einstein is a classic example, right? I mean, he, he didn't create some of his most, you know, historical theories by kind of, again, just keeping his head buried in, in his papers, right? Part of the theory of relativity was based on dreaming and envisioning right? Daydreaming, essentially. So anyway, just probably enough of that, but that's that's a critical piece that very few people want to talk about or want to do. So I think you, you were kind of mentioning it earlier. So a lot of people like you kind of in the process of recruiting and kind of in the uh, applying for jobs at the moment. So do you have any advice for like the job and search and application process specifically for data scientists? Because I think right now is a really overwhelming time, especially for us students in the MSBA program as well. We're kind of all just like scouting for jobs and putting ourselves out there. So any advice? Um, any advice? Um, I tell you what, uh, to us as a company, your resume doesn't really mean much to us, um, if anything at all. Um, one, we will notice immediately your attention to detail and how you communicate with us in emails. Um, if you're sloppy, and you make stupid mistakes in your email, you're not gonna get your foot in the door. It's not gonna happen. Um, you need to have attention to detail. You need to be responsive. Um, those are like two of the biggest things in our field. Um, when, when, when I'm dealing with a client, I have to be, I have to have attention to detail and I have to be very responsive, mm -hmm. period. I don't have to be the smartest person. I don't be the fastest person. If I have attention to detail, I'm responsive. You know, they're gonna, usually I'm gonna build, they're gonna build trust with them. Um, so we'll know that immediately with people interested in, in wanting to work with us. Um, so those two are very important. And then third, when you're on an interview, bring, bring an example of your work. Bring some, bring some cool stuff to show them. Um, you can talk about it all you want, but if you pull out like a badass dashboard and start showing them, they're going to they're gonna love it. I mean, I can't really add too much to that. That's just the way we see how we look at, you know, recruiting mm -hmm. and prospects. I, I mean, it's very rare that we actually get an individual that just does the basics. I, I, I know a lot of people out there are going to shake their heads, but it's just true from the seats that we sit in, write an email without a grammatical mistake, right? Capitalize proper names, spacing, take pride in your communication. Now, why is that really, really important to us? Well, if we if we did the same thing and delivered the, a, a sloppy report to a client, we're not going to get hired again. And besides, we're not just a normal consulting company either. I mean, we're sort of, you know, 
way above the shoulders of the rig, the grist of the mill of what's out there. A lot of sloppiness. So if you're a candidate or a student, you know, or some, someone soon to graduate, you know, Michael nailed it, you know, be detail oriented, um, show up on time, no excuses. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we've, we've gotten these resumes with just a phenomenal background and, you know, they can't even show up on time. We used to do those group interviews, Dave, with like 20 people. We bring like 20 people at once and do round tables with all our analysts. Um, and if you didn't show up on time, we locked our door. Yeah. It's like, it's the easiest thing is to just be on time. Right. Be on <laughs> it's time. one of the easiest things. Just be punctual. Yeah. So all the basics, the fundamentals, right? That are, don't even involve your career choice. Yeah. But then showing something, right? Show off. Talking about it. It's the same thing as a resume. You could be lying. You know, I mean, we've gotten so jaded by the process. People yeah. saying they can do all these things and they really can't. Uh, we heard a guy who's a dual degree from Stanford and Harvard. And like I make a joke, he couldn't even staple two pieces of paper together. Show your work, bring your laptop, have it all ready to go and say, oh, by the way, uh, like let's just say you're interviewing for Pepsi or, you know, a big company, build a model. Take some time, invest some time. If that's the place you really want to work, build a forecast model for their revenue going out 15 years and show them something they've never seen before. You do all that. I couldn't see why they wouldn't, you know, invite you back for a second interview and be highly interested in someone who took the effort and the care to do something way beyond what the normal recruit would do. Yeah, pulling out your laptop, right? Or as I used to joke with Michael, you know, let's just say they're, you know, you're interviewing for, you know, someone who needs to be an expert in Python. Mm -hmm. Go buy the biggest book, the biggest damn book you can find on, on everything Python. Read the whole thing from cover to cover. Understand the whole thing. And then walk in the interview with it. Plop it on the desk. Say, <laughs> I know everything in this book. You know, be truthful, obviously. But if you do that and just sit there and say, hey, just test me. Ask me anything that's in this book and I will answer it. I, I can't see how you, you can't get an, a second interview or be hired. I mean, make it, here's the, the big kind of philosophical advice, make it so they can't say no, where you're, they're just so intrigued by this person that's sitting in front of them that is wholly unique because, you know, they've seen everybody's just a peg, you know, right? just, everybody does the same resume. They make the same mistakes on the resume. They, they they come in like either two minutes or two minutes late or 10 minutes late. You get there really early, right? Bring your laptop, be proactive. You know, so anyway, those are just a couple of points that we would love to see, but we don't see any of that generally. I think that's, yeah. The about showing yourself off and even bringing your laptop. Like I've never been given that advice. And it's, it's like, I really appreciate that because I think, as grad students and students in general, we're always trying to figure out how to make ourselves unique. And so I think that would be like such an amazing thing to do at an interview. Yeah. yeah. In worst case, print it out, you know, mm -hmm. and that's another thing. Have a backup plan. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh my God. I, this was working, you know, in the lobby right before my interview, have a backup plan, have it printed out. Say, Oh, for some reason, I'm not picking up Wi-Fi. My computer's being a bitch right now. <laughs> Close it. Don't say that. obviously in your interview. <laughs> Close your laptop lid and say, here, I, I, I have a plan B. I printed this out just in case this, this one in a hundred 
instance happens because mm-hmm. everybody realizes and can be empathetic that a computer just doesn't work at, at mm-hmm. these special times. But if you have a, pr- you know, printout, um, you know, you, the, the interviewers can't be, can't help but be impressed. Go, wow. You know, I want to hire someone who has a backup plan, but who, who <laughs> thinks of backup plans? You know, very few people. So, um, which led me to the fact that when we do presentations live, like when we had a theater or mm-hmm. when we're invited to speak at a keynote, we usually have all the same computers, you know, everything's redundant. So if I'm, you know, speaking with Michael or, or by myself, or it's just Michael, we have two laptops, mine and his with exactly the same presentation models. So let's just say the computer goes kablooey. Hold on one second. And it's already ready to go. It's not going to have to bring up the file. It's ready. Mm-hmm. Pop in the HDMI cable and you're ready to go. Now that's just impressive in and of itself, right? That you would think that if that happened, you'd be prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, just a couple of points about, I guess, recruiting. I think our listeners will really appreciate this advice mm-hmm. because I think we kind of, as Mira said, we're all trying to be unique in our own ways. And I think kind of taking the initiative for different companies, as you said, like build a forecasting model and everything. And uh, we actually, I actually had an opportunity to, for my dream company to like, when we did the stock forecasting project. So great things like that kind of just help out. So Oh, you just reminded me of something. Last summer, um, the receptionist said, you know, David, you've got this box with a nice, beautiful bow on it. <laughs> and so I opened it up and there was a resume sort of taped <laughs> in the box with all these cookies and donuts. <laughs> like, cute, nice. Um, forced me to write a nice thank you, but I'd rather have had that person mail me an mm-hmm. example of a forecast model Right or are you something unique about economics or, hey, you know, here's a paper I wrote on X Y Z. Even though I'm not saying I didn't appreciate the cookies and donuts, but, right, that's it's it's almost ne- it's almost there's a negative connotation there. It's almost yeah. like mm-hmm. uh, is this person or bribe their way uh, in. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be bought. I want to be impressed. Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather <laughs> just not be bribed. Right. I'd rather be. Uh, impressed blow me away show me something i've never seen before you know yeah. make, make me think you know remember we taught this in class the ooh and the ah make me go ooh ah you know you know and there's so many million ways to do that but that takes effort it takes creativity right you know you can't just do that in a vacuum well yeah uh thank you again for taking our time i know you guys are extremely busy because with everything going on and i think uh, Mira and I really appreciate you guys taking our time to come and speak with us and our uh, listeners and give them really good advice. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate all the advice you gave. I'm definitely going to be thinking more about how to be unique, just how you were explaining. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Yeah. And if any of your listeners, uh, viewers um, have any questions or want to get a hold of us, you can forward their mm-hmm. our contact information. We always like to, we obviously love to help since we teach too, right? So, yeah. Thank you for listening. All right, bye everyone. Thank you. Bye guys. Bye. Take care everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.